the industry as a whole is extremely quantitative and I have a background as a qualitative researcher. And so one of the skill sets that served me best in my current practice is being a storyteller, is finding a narrative in more quantitative, more kind of buttoned up presentations of information. This podcast is brought to you by Merksec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MerckSec.com to connect today. Welcome to Destination Cyber, the podcast where we sit down with cyber industry leaders and movers and shakers and find out what makes them tick. We explore their careers, the mistakes they made, trials and tribulations, lessons learnt, and the invaluable insights and knowledge they've picked up along the way. Now here's your host, Lachlan Korn. Claire Tills is a senior research engineer with Tenable's security response team. Previously, she was a product marketing manager for Nessus and Tenable Research. Her background also includes experience in public relations at a cybersecurity firm and several years teaching public speaking. She has spoken at several conferences, providing training and written extensively on the topic of security and communication. I'm your host, Logan Korn, and this is Destination Cyber. Hello, Claire. Thank you for coming on today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Lovely. So let's just get started straight into it. Um, can you give me a bit of a brief outline on what your current position is and what is involved with that current position? Absolutely. My current title is a Senior Research Engineer. Um, which doesn't tell you a lot, (laughs) but I'm part of what Tenable calls our security response team. And what our role is to monitor the threat landscape, kind of keep an eye on everything that's happening in the industry, uh, digest, analyze all of that information, and then repurpose it out to audiences that need it, whether that's internal stakeholders, external audiences, friends, you know, countrymen, whomever needs to know, we tailor it based off of what channels we need. Um, So our primary, like I spend an inordinate amount of time for my work tracking Twitter, uh, tracking news feeds, tracking intelligence feeds, and figuring out what's happening. And then the key point of our work is really in the digestion and analysis of like, okay, this is what's written in the advisory how do we translate that? What does this mean to this particular audience? How how should people use this information? And putting that into the format people understand and then getting it in front of them. I see. And is this based on a very security-focused research? Absolutely. So a lot of what we look at are vulnerability advisories from vendors, um, whether it's Microsoft or F5 or whomever. We look at any advisory that is coming out. We'll also track the researcher community. So a lot of folks will publish write-ups about vulnerabilities that they've discovered um, and we'll go through those write-ups extensively and read those proofs of concept or the you know technical blog posts, all of that in a whole really, we have a, a little bit more of a vulnerability lens, but we do also look at threat actors. So ransomware groups, initial access brokers, the people who are exploiting those vulnerabilities and understand how they're operating. Interesting. So these informations that you acquire, is this based on primary, 
um, evidence or is this based on secondary? So you're saying that you sort of go through Twitter and other other forms to get sort of the information. Is, is it also a primary aspect evidence where you test yourself and the vulnerabilities like penetration testing or is that something completely different? That's something completely different. Um, that's not something that our team dives into. We we're a small team. <laughs> so <laughs> just just ingesting what's out in the newsfeed and in the world takes all of our time. Um, it's it's a it's a small but mighty team. Um, and we have other folks in our zero day research team who will occasionally go in and um, find vulnerabilities themselves in um, in vendors' products. And so we'll we'll partner with them occasionally. Um, but in terms of the penetration testing, that's not um, under our remit. We're very much a more um, vulnerability management aspect. So the difference between the two is we understand the vulnerabilities and then the penetration testing is looking holistically at like, okay, how can these tactics be used against an organization? And then what can the organization do to prevent us in the future? Okay. I think I get you. Okay. And in terms of the information that you acquire, do you find that the information is a lot of quantity and you have to sort of distill that down or is it more you're looking for very qualitative and more concise research? Like how, how does the um, processing and digestion of that um, research, can you describe what it sort of the methodologies is like with that? Yeah, it's a very interesting mix because the industry as a whole is extremely quantitative and I have a background as a qualitative researcher. Um, and so one of, one of the skill sets that served me best in my, in my current practice is being a storyteller is finding a narrative in more quantitative, more, um, kind of buttoned up, uh, presentations of information. So when you look at a vendor advisory, it is very dry. It is very you know, factual, it can be quantitative in a way, it may not necessarily be numbers, but you know, you have the CVSS metrics, which are not qualitative necessarily, they don't have a lot of information to them. So you have to then dig in and say, okay, what is what is the story here? How can I narratively explain this to someone so that it, it you know, sinks into their brain, and they can understand it themselves? Okay, interesting, interesting. And how so you sort of st- taking a step back a little and going back to sort of from the very beginning, the very beginning of time, um, the master's, you were doing a master's degree in communication, correct? Yes. So my, my, my direction into this role is very interesting. I love talking about it because it's so weird. Um, I studied what was called social influence communication in my undergrad. And I discovered that I liked the idea of public relations. I've always liked communication because I love the idea of my work being focused on developing mutual understanding. And that's kind of the crux of communication. It's also the crux of public relations. Um, So right after undergrad, I got a job at a PR firm that just so happened to work in cybersecurity. I was not interested in cybersecurity at the time. It was interested in me, it turns out. Um, And so I got that job. I worked there for several months. I knew I was going back to graduate school and I was going to study crisis communication. And this was in 2014. Um, And I don't know if your listeners remember this or if they are youthful and don't, but 2014 was a wild year in cybersecurity. It was the year of the Sony breach um, by the North Korean government-ish, maybe. Um, It was also the breach of Office of Personnel Management in the U.S. federal government. So it was... Uh, very chaotic. And looking at that, I was like, hey, I want to do crisis communication. And it turns out cybersecurity could really use help with that. 
Um, so when I went to get my master's degree, I used that as an opportunity to study cybersecurity crises through a like deeply theoretical lens. So taking these well-established crisis communication theories and putting them on top of these cybersecurity incidences to better understand them. Okay. And what made cybersecurity interesting to you? How were you drawn to it? Because of course you said you were you sort of got, got into this PR and there was a sort of cybersecurity element, but what actually specifically drew you to then continue the cybersecurity pathway? What really did it for me was that it seemed like a place I could help. It seemed like a place I could have an impact um, knowing that I was going to not only study crisis communication, but have a deeply theoretical approach. Every industry that is new has growing pains. Um, we experience this in public relations as well. There's a lot of literature about like how the practice of public relations matured and how it kind of standardized itself. And I saw a lot of that reflected in cybersecurity questions of, okay, how do we prove our value when our job is to prevent bad things from happening? Like, how do we how do we get companies to spend money when our only proof is like, hey, look, nothing bad happened Um, that that is true of public relations. And it's also true in cybersecurity. So seeing some of those those foils back and forth, but also just seeing it as a place of this is an industry I could have an impact. This is an industry that I my skill set could help. Do you think that the industry that you are describing has a bit of preconceptions that it may not have been as useful and helpful to people in the past, you know, people who don't know much about cybersecurity, how come they think there's a stigma around how actual beneficial it is for people? Yeah, I think it's, it comes down to these sort of business decisions of PR and cybersecurity are cost centers and all of the places where they provide value are intangible. I I kind of laughed about it because I took PR classes in my undergraduate career and heard so many times of like, here's how you prove the value of PR mathematically to the board. Here's how you quantify the value of PR. And then I started dipping my toe in cybersecurity and they were asking those same questions of like, how do we go to the board and prove that we're not just a cost center? We're not just, you know, very expensive fire sprinklers. Mm. And how did you find that that process um, changed the way you viewed cybersecurity from that point onwards? I think a lot of it just centered back to my love for communication, because anytime you have those sorts of questions, the answer is always building relationships and understanding your audience, because the key to any successful communication is not actually what you're saying. It's, are you saying it the right way to the right audience? So understanding what your audience needs to hear, what questions they're going to have, and then answering them in a way that they'll respect, that's true across the board. Um, and so that that underlying love of like the foundations of communication were really what I was like, yeah, this is this is what cybersecurity needs. They need someone to come in who isn't, you know, just, you know, necessarily spouting anecdotes of, hey, this worked for me, but someone who comes in and says, no, here's a decades old theory that has been tested multiple times in several contexts. Here's my literature review <laughs> um, and and going with that very, you know, foundational 
background of like, hey, it, I'm not just making this up, I promise. Yeah, I mean, in terms of your you're initially going into that PR role, did you have any knowledge of cybersecurity beforehand? Or was it a lot of like on the experience sort of training that, oh, I understand sort of the lingo and how to how to address these issues and talk about it with with necessary clients? I think I had like the tiniest awareness of cybersecurity just through news. Um, I, it was right at that uh, kind of inflection point where breaches were becoming popular news and more of them were um, stepping over into mainstream media. So I was seeing more about that. So I was at least aware cybersecurity is a thing. Um, but a lot of it was sort of picking it up on the fly as I was working. And that's one of the things that's great about working at a firm um, is you've got to be a little bit of an expert on a lot of things. You know, you're not you're not necessarily expected to have deep knowledge of one thing. You're you're really allowed to just kind of jump from topic to topic of like, OK, this client specializes in this. So have, be conversant in this subject. And then this client does this thing. So be conversant in that. So I was able to get a very broad understanding of the scope of the industry and um, not really, you know, pigeon my pigeonhole myself too early. Mm. And did you find those concepts that you sort of had to learn in terms of the broad depth and the broad depth and span of it? Do you find that that process was difficult? Was the concepts that was you were learning, were they difficult to sort of wrap your head around that took a bit of time or was it more, how was, how was the learning process and procedure for you? It kind of depends. I think when I was at the firm, my understanding was able to be kind of light enough where I needed, I needed an elevator pitch. I needed to be three minutes. I needed to be able to say a single sentence on what a client did. And once I got, you know, the role at Tenable and once I got much deeper into this, um, it got much more complicated because the more technical your topics are, the longer it takes to write a short description. So a great example I love giving on this is one of the early projects I was working on when I joined Tenable, I was writing about Java deserialization vulnerabilities. And I was looking around and I couldn't find a good, concise, like one or two sentence description of like, what the heck that is. <laughs> like, what What's point A and point B for Java deserialization? What What is the single sentences, sentence that says what this does? I couldn't really find one. It took me three hours of research <laughs> to be able to write that. Like when you get to a certain level of technicality, it's very hard to be concise. It takes way more effort. Um, and I think that is that is something you see in this industry of it's really easy to be verbose about a topic. It's really easy to keep talking and keep explaining something. But if you can explain something in two to five minutes, that means you're really an expert. Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. I like the perspective. I mean, I'm not even going to attempt to say that Java, the rest of those words, because, oh my, that was that was a mouthful to say the least. Um, <laughs> yes, it's just a mouthful to say the word, let alone figure out what the heck invol is involved. <laughs> Listen, it sounds impressive regardless. So I think, <laughs> um, okay. And, and taking a completely different um, train of thought now, how would you say describe yourself and you, as in your personality, sort of your work ethic? Are, are you more an individual worker or are you more a team player? And how would those attributes that you have 
with that complements your current role or perhaps even maybe make some more challenges for that role? Yeah, I think I think in terms of describing myself, I would I would describe myself as a storyteller. Um, and I think some of my biggest skill sets are in parsing what's interesting from, you know, a bucket of information, like parsing what what that kernel of value is for a particular audience. So looking at something that's big and detailed and saying like, okay, this is the piece I need. This is the piece that whoever I'm speaking to later actually needs to know. You can ignore everything else. Um, and another skill set that I have is helping other people find that story. So it's not just developing the story myself, but a lot of the work I've done, particularly when I was in product marketing, was going to our very brilliant researchers and saying, I know you have lived in this research and it has been your baby for six months, but no one is going to read 5,000 words on this subject. So let's find a thousand, let's find 1500 words that are actually necessary and cut it down to that. So like helping other people find the story in their own word. Mm. I, I guess it's really good because I guess I keep forgetting as a uni student and probably just as someone going through, or mainly through school, is that they teach you to write large bodies, sophisticated, but sometimes the client just wants it to be as simplified and as easy to understand as possible compared to what sometimes you'd be taught about using very, like you said, the verbose um, kind of <laughs> style and, and the rest. So as I say, one of the one of the things I often would say and still say to friends and colleagues is you don't have to try to sound smart. You are smart. <laughs> you don't you don't have to put effort in your sentences don't have to be, you know, so long. Just be concise, get the point across, and you will come off as intelligent as you actually are. You don't have to, you don't have to put so much effort into sounding smart. We we believe you, we trust you. Um, because that that is pretty rampant in this industry of like, well, if I just use more words, they'll they'll know how smart I am. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And based on that perhaps first lesson that you learned, would do you say there were any other potential mistakes or lessons that you learned throughout your career that has helped you sort of grow into what you know now? Yeah, I think, I think something that a lot of, there are two things. One is, is truly just like bureaucratic business type stuff that I can get into. But the first one I want to talk about is um, when you're early in your career, there's this very important balancing act between humility and trusting your gut um, of I've obviously transitioned from significantly less technical roles, um, much more creative and content roles into a very technical role right now. Like I don't code, but I have to be able to analyze and understand very technical things. And even, even with my years of experience and my time in the industry, I was still very, very unsure of myself when I was starting in this role. And I would go to my colleagues and I would say, hey, am I right in this? Am I, you know, 
does I, I'm not understanding this. And then they would read it and they go, no, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, so, so finding the places where, um, you can trust yourself and developing that instinct a little bit better and finding, finding mentors who can give you that gut check of saying you are technical enough to understand this, or your writing is good enough. Like whatever skill you feel unsure about, um, work on tuning your humility appropriate appropriately. Cause I know this industry can be very daunting and for early career folks, it's important to be humble, but don't let it cripple you. Um, don't, don't let it really hold you back by being overly humble. Get a, get an accurate understanding of your abilities and go with that. Don't, don't hamstring yourself by being like, Oh, I'm not technical enough for that. You, you might be more technical than you think, or you might be a better writer than you think or whatever the skill is. Mm, okay. And what about your bureaucratic um, scenario? I've had that happen to me a couple of times. And it gets very difficult when you get to advancement or um, annual review season. <laughs> it's just like, okay, how am I measuring up to expectations? Well, we didn't actually write down what they were. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. Um, and writing them up after you've been in a job for a year is a little wishy-washy. So start day one. And even if it's just you writing it down yourself and checking with your boss to make sure it's correct, that's fine. But have a single sentence that is, what problem am I solving, big or small? Um, and then a couple bullet points of like what those objectives are um, so that when you're coming back uh, six months later, you can say, okay, I did this or I haven't done this yet. I should focus on that. Um, because I've, I've had a few situations where I've taken a job and it feels really, it can feel very um, cool because you're like, they wanted to hire me so badly. They created a job for me out of whole cloth. Um, but make sure you get that job description. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely a good point to note out, I have to say. Um, I guess this sort of flows on to sort of my next my next question, which is if you had the opportunity to sort of go back and tell your younger self, sort of um, give them tips about how they could get in, how you or they could get into the the industry that you want to in the pathway, what would you recommend? Would you repeat the same process that you would have done or would you have gone to do different qualifications first or would you have gone to look at different opportunities first or, you know, based on your current experience, what would you give? that person? I think knowing my trajectory, the main thing I would change is probably picking up more actual like computer science courses in my undergrad. Um, so I'm very thankful for my grad program and how it focused. And I actually did take some like data analytics and a couple uh, courses in the comp side department, but they were all much more communication focused, but having some computer science courses in undergrad, I think would set things up. But one of the things I did really well um, that I would go back and say, this is something that's coming your way, make sure you stick with it, is finding networks, finding mentors, finding people in the space who um, I can go to and have have those honest conversations with about careers. Like I have a small cohort of folks that if I have an opportunity or if something comes up, I can go to them and say, this company has approached me or I've received this offer and either they know about the company or they know someone or they can just kind of read the offer and say, this is good or this isn't as is having, having that network around. Because also this is a the job market can be difficult if you don't know someone. 
um, it's much easier to have a, because even in the like nuts and bolts of it, if you are applying to a, you know, functional system of like putting your application into a computer system, there are backends where if I'm an employee there, I can go in and say, hey, I know this person and it'll bump things up to the top of the pile. Um, in addition to someone who can just physically put your resume in front of someone's eyeballs, like having those networks can be hugely valuable um, because applying for jobs is the absolute worst. Mm, definitely. I can, I can agree with that after coming out from uni. Um, there was definitely some things, but um, would you say that then, you know, being more diverse in your methodologies of applying for jobs? So like you said, more than just simply applying online, but trying to perhaps contact maybe an employee that might just be able to give a bit of tips or maybe perhaps going in person if there is a physical location and submitting it personally would you recommend those things just as much or is it still going to be the same chance of you just if you were to apply online I would say the better focus would be develop your network broadly. So go to virtual or in-person events. So B-sides are all around the world, but also non-B-sides events. They're just the easiest that come to mind because they're all over the place. But um, B-sides events, other smaller cybersecurity events, job fairs, those are really good to start building that face to name recognition, but also just building the network that you have of people around you. I would be cautious about cold reaching out if you've already applied. Like your best bet is to develop the network before you need the job, um, which is hard when you are in college. (laughs) So getting involved in the community, um, whether that's on Twitter or through virtual events or through virtual communities or in-person events, um, getting involved in the community as early as you can meeting folks um, before you need a, an assistance is, is always the best bet. Once you do kind of get into the application process, you can see like, Oh, my, my friend works there or, Oh, this person is the chair of this event. I can email them and say, Hey, I've been to your event before. I really liked it. I'm applying like have that connection rather than going straight in cold. Cause um, that, can backfire occasionally, but having some sort of meaningful connection of like, Hey, we're both members of this organization, or we were, you're the chair of this event that I love, or we met at a job fair. All of those are much more um, helpful in in boosting that resume and, and kind of getting it to the top of the pile or getting it past the automatic automatic automated filters. Mm, Okay. That's that's really good advice. Um, I understand exactly what you mean by that and the whole idea of not trying to sort of contact them while applying because it means it sort of also can feel like your only reason you're reaching out in the first place is to try to get a leg up rather than being genuinely interested and friendly to it. So I understand. I completely understand where that is coming from. Um, sort of now looking a bit more into to the future, how do you think that the industry, especially the one where you're in, which is like the, the, the researching of the cyber, how would you feel that that role has, is changing? Is it, is it changing? Is it going to be looking different in the next five to 10 years or will it be very much the same? I think it is changing just because of the volume of interest and intelligence and stuff that's happening. Um, And then also the volume of attention. 
Um, so we kind of talk about alert fatigue and vulnerability overload and all that for defenders. We talk about, you know, if you're working in a security operations center, you have a bajillion alerts coming in like, hey, so-and-so clicked on this sketchy link or this person changed their password in a weird way. Like you're getting so many of these alerts that your brain is fatigued by making decisions. And it's the same with vulnerabilities of you're seeing 300 a month. How do you pick which ones to patch? Um, I think the industry is really reaching that point as well of we're we're kind of getting attention fatigue and I'm seeing kind of a shift in folks trying to figure out how do we, how do we tailor that? Like, what what do we want to attend to as an industry? What's important to us? What has value? And kind of the question of like, okay, does this have value because it could meaningfully improve security? Or does this have value because it's cool? Um, or does this have value because there's, you know, a logo and a flashy title on this vulnerability, but it doesn't actually do anything. So I think in the next five to 10 years, we'll see that crystallize a little bit better of the attention of the industry um, distilling a little bit, filtering down and showing like, okay, these are the things that we care about a little bit more. And so we're going to pay attention to them. And ideally that will filter down into, these are things that meaningfully impact secure practices. <laughs> Hopefully we do not focus only on stunt hacks. and <laughs> we, we make the choices in industry to focus on like, hey, this is what matters. These are the things that have a meaningful impact on making organizations more secure. Um, because we just don't have the attention span. We don't have the energy to look at so many different moving parts. Okay. So do you think then, sorry, I'm trying to see if I can interpret that. Do you, if, are you saying that there's going to be perhaps two different sort of levels of um, cybersecurity? One will be more of a general, you know, your general um, issues that face in a constant society and then the higher order, more complicated um, issues in the cybersecurity field. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because we're already starting to see it sort of filter out of like, even on our team, we have our bread and butter stuff of we know Patch Tuesday is going to come out every month. And we know other companies like it's Microsoft, it's Adobe, we know other companies do quarterly releases like Oracle and F5. Um, and so those are kind of rote, like, well, something might jump up out of it. But those ones are usually just business as usual. We we go through our processes. It's um it's nothing, nothing crazy. And then there are the things that kind of break out of that. Um, and the incidents that are used as almost a like teaching example or something like that. So I think we're already starting to see that stratification. And I think it'll just become a little more um, apparent over over the years of like, there'll be the business as usual discussions. And then there'll be the log 4j, the things that happen every three months that dis, uh, disrupt everything we're doing. Mm. It sounds it sounds like that would make be a logical step. I mean, you you know you're mentioning that it's a bit mentally draining to have so many different alerts, notifications, you know, sort of cloud your day and stuff. So, would you say that then, if you were to describe the the job that you're currently in, would you say that it's it's in a very intense, high strung environment, or is there sort of periods of high strung and periods of not so much activity, or is it just a constant? It's kind of feast or famine at times. It's um, it's occasionally, you know, everything's happening all at once or we'll have, you know, weeks of quiet. And it's to the point where I don't even use 
quiet anymore because then you're just, you know, tempting the universe. Um, I will say it is suspicious. <laughs> like we're waiting for the next shoe to drop because if you say that it's quiet, it will all of a sudden get very noisy. Um, but we see that a lot of this sort of feast or famine of we'll go two, three weeks sometimes without having any really noticeable vulnerabilities or noticeable incidents happening. And then all of a sudden we've got four or five in a single week that we need to prioritize and triage. Mm, okay. Okay. And in terms of then your, um, how do I trying to figure out a way to word this correctly? Um, would you say that your skills that are required to sort of deal with this with this current job environment would you could you give me like three necessary skills as if someone wanted to get into a position similar to where you were at what skills would be required maybe one would be to deal with sort of a a a volatile um a range of, of work and stress and so forth so what would what would you consider is sort of the three skills required for that for the job that you were currently in Absolutely. That's a great question. I think one skill would be figure out how to maximize quiet time. Um, figure out, you know, can, I consistently have a list of things of this is, this is a project that I need two uninterrupted days <laughs> to get done. Um, so have those sorts of things so that when the quiet sneaks up on you, you have, you know what you can get done. You know what needs to be done. Like, oh, this this um, this template is weird and I need to go in and fix these things. Um, and so I've got that on a list or I, I couldn't finish doing this thing because something caught on fire. So next time it's quiet, I can finish it. Like have that running list so you can really maximize your quiet periods. Um, and then the next is a triage ability um, of, of being able to look at four or five things that are happening and being able to decide and knowing you may not always make the right decision, but knowing you have to make a decision. So avoiding that decision paralysis of, of looking at four things, because that's really, that's really difficult when you're new in your career. Um, is is making those decisions, but being able to look at like four or five things and saying, okay, I have space for three. These are the three I'm picking. This is my rationale. And that's what I'm going with of, you know, as long as your rationale is strong, even if things go poorly, that's kind of where you land is I made a decision based off of these factors and I would do it again. Um, even though it didn't play out the right way is, is having, having that triage ability. And then I think it kind of ties into the second one of having the ability to communicate those decisions, but also just generally how to communicate in a time of volatility. Um, so, you know, it's really easy to communicate and share information when everything is moving slowly and smoothly, but what happens when everything is happening all at once? How how do you keep track of the information? How do you make sure it gets to the people who need it and that they're able to do something with it? So that ability to not just act, but also communicate what you're doing to the people who need to know. Um, particularly if you're in a junior role, that can be so helpful in any sort of incident or crisis. Um, because your boss needs to be able to trust you to get stuff done. 
And if you can go to them at the end of the day and just send them an email that they don't have to read, but they'll have saying, hey, here's everything I did today. And they can go to that and say like, oh, look at all of the things this person took off of my plate. That's really, really valuable. Mm, okay. Very interesting. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on today to speak with us. I think you've opened my our eyes up to a lot of new things that um, we didn't consider. So um, this has been um, a wonderful chat. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been another KBI Media Production.